I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're in the fifth chapter of Daniel this morning. Um, we have been making good progress, I think, through the book. I'm trying to take no more than one week in each chapter. This is another long narrative. It's very interesting. It's interesting historically as well. There's a lot going on in the world around uh, Daniel chapter 5 and what happens here. Um, I'll start off by uh, just giving you a moment of perspective. So we read in chapter 4 last week that Nebuchadnezzar, well into his reign, this great king of Babylon, this great king in world history, frankly, Um, was humbled by God. There is archaeological evidence to suggest um, that God's word um, is, uh, is pretty accurate when it comes to the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. There appears a time uh, later in his life when he is absent from the throne for uh, an extended period of time. Now, there's no archaeological explanation for why he's absent. He's simply not ruling He's still alive, he returns to rule, but in the decrees uh, that we have from Babylon at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar is not the king issuing them. And of course that makes sense if you were a part of a kingdom as grand and an empire as large as the Babylonian Empire, the dominant empire of the world so that all of the other peoples around you had been subjugated and they were looking towards strong leadership, strong centralized leadership in uh, uh, the capital city of Babylon. If the king were under some mental distress, that's not something you would publicize. That's not something that you would want to spread around. And so he does return to power, finishes out his life. Uh, He dies. We have chapter 4, this great recount of his experience with the God of Israel, with Daniel's God. Um, There are other accounts like that about the Babylonian king. Uh, I won't get into the the evidence of that, but chapter 4 is a very compelling chapter. I do expect, based on chapter 4, that I might very well one day meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Uh, We will see. Uh, Either way, chapter 4 makes it clear that Nebuchadnezzar had learned his lesson. He understood that God had it in his power to uh, raise up whomever he would raise up, and to cast down whomever he would cast down. What we read in chapter 5 is approximately 20, 25 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. We could be very specific and say 23 years because archaeological evidence confirms when the king died, who reigned uh, in the aftermath, and how long before the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonians. We are going to read that tonight in this one chapter, this morning this one chapter, in one evening the Persians overthrow Babylon. And this is a great event in world history. Uh, You can read about this. You can read about the military aspect of it. Apart from Scripture, the Bible does not get deep into the military aspect of it. Uh, We do have in other uh, prophetic books in the Bible an explanation of what God was going to do in the the Persians taking over uh, the the Babylonian capital, uh, that they would be in a state of drunkenness in Babylon, so says the prophets. And we will read that this evening, that they would be very secure behind their walls, walls that historically were recorded to be, uh, even if exaggerated, uh, impenetrable, that they were not uh, concerned in the capital city of Babylon about the armies outside. And that's the situation. The Persians had beaten the Babylonians all across the empire by this stage. So the, the great empire of Babylon has come to an end. Cyrus the Great who uh, I appreciate Tim reading about this morning. Cyrus the Great had come to power. It was clear that the Persians were were 
the next great empire of the world. They had conquered all the territory in a very short period of time that Babylon had previously owned, but the actual city of Babylon itself was a, a pretty marvelous construction. And like I said, uh, history, secular history recounts the the fortifications and the, the amount of food inside, able to, to withhold years of a siege. And that's what we're looking at. We're, this is a city under siege, just recently under siege. The king uh, at the time, uh, Nabonidus, had gone out and had made war with uh, the Persians in one final military attempt to overthrow their armies, and he had been defeated. He is captured at this point in time. The person that we're going to read about, Belshazzar, in this chapter is the king, but he is the king uh, only in the absence of the real king. He is most likely Nabonidus' son and a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar on his mother's side. Uh, he is most likely um, a weak person whose chief political purpose to this point has been to be the governor in the city of Babylon because we know historically his father Nabonidus, though he was the king of the great Babylonian empire, did not make his home in Babylon itself. Instead, he appointed this guy, Belshazzar, to be ruler in his stead. So we're reading about a guy who in official terms would be second in charge of the Babylonian empire. But in practical terms, with the imprisonment of the true king Nabonidus, and honestly the, the vacated part of Nabonidus' rule where he ruled from a distance with someone else in charge, uh, the, for all intents and practical purposes, the ruling king in Babylon. That's who Belshazzar is. So this is a desperate time. Um, let's begin reading verse 1 of chapter 5, and we'll read about this. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Not an uncommon thing. History recounts that these, these feasts were uh, in the Babylonian Empire, in the Persian Empire, in the Greek Empire, where thousands of people would be a part of them. It was the, the, don't let the numbers here make you think, oh, that seems absurd. No, very common in, in uh, ancient uh, empires. He makes a feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father... And I'll pause there. The word father in the ancient Semitic languages and the language of the Middle East did not only refer to your immediate biological father. It referred to your lineage, your parentage. So that a grandfather, a great-grandfather, even a father removed five or six generations would be called a father. Uh, sometimes they would call it a father's father, but never in reference to a grandfather, only when talking about someone ancient whom you had descended from. You would call, like if I knew I came from some, some person ten generations removed, I would call that person, I might label them my father's father. But whenever we're talking about a father or a grandfather or even a great-grandfather, the word used in the text is father. And so Belshazzar's grandfather is Nebuchadnezzar, and that's that's what we read here. He gives the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now the Babylonians were polytheistic people. They had many gods. Um, they had gods for all of these different elements. This feast, however, is not a random feast. This is a festival being held while the enemy is literally at the gates. So it's unclear 
historically, contextually, what Belshazzar's end motive in this is. Uh, generally, historians think that this feast is representative of Belshazzar trying to boost the morale of all of his nobles and lords. Because even though the empire had been conquered and they had suffered great military defeat, there was really no military reason to think that the city of Babylon was in any danger. The, if, if the city was under siege, it had just begun. They had years and years worth of food uh, stored up. And uh, like I said, the walls were pretty fantastical. Uh, um, secular histories describe walls so wide that you could parade chariots along the outer rim, along the top of the walls. So this, in ancient times, this is practically impenetrable. So most historians, because again, even this feast on the night of Babylon's fall is well recognized in history. This is not simply a biblical story. This is a historical reality that there was this great feast among the king and all of his lords and they were in a state of drunkenness. So much so that when the Persians actually break through in the middle of the night and take the city, history records, this is not from God's word, history records that the people in the inner parts of the city were unaware that the outer parts of the city had even fallen. It happened that quickly, and they were very secure. They had no reason to think that they were in danger. So it's in this context that Belshazzar throws a great feast, and they all get drunk. History is also very clear about this pattern in uh, Babylonian custom, that after the meal, you would overindulge in, in alcohol, in wine, that there would be a time of feasting and celebration that would often uh, drift into outright debauchery. Belshazzar gets the idea, and we don't know why, Let's go, literally across the street is where it was, but let's go, I can tell you this because it's all been excavated. It's pretty interesting to read about uh, um, if, if you want to study this, but go across the street into the, the museum, for lack of a better term, the, the treasury of where all of the stuff that we've conquered from all of the other empires of the world is stored, and go get all of the gold vessels that were crafted during the great reign of King Solomon. Okay, go get all of the gold utensils that were in Solomon's great temple, which, which you know, was one of the wonders that the world knew about at this time. So he's really picking, go get some of the most marvelous stuff that we've ever taken back and bring it in here and we're all going to drink with it. We're all, we're all going to get drunk with it. Now, there were un, it was unlikely there were thousands of these things. So they're drinking and passing this stuff around and everybody's, I mean, they've, they've gone beyond... Uh, soberness, soberness and sobriety at this point in time. They're, they're well advanced into, into the stage. But the stuff that they are using is stuff that God had, had, had sanctified and had cleansed for use in his holy temple, which the Babylonians had destroyed. At this point, there is no temple in Jerusalem. There is no for all practical purposes, a Jerusalem. The wall was gone, all the buildings were raised, and there is no temple. That had been destroyed, completely ruined. This is what remained from the temple, and now Nebuchadnezzar is going to defile what used to have to go through ceremonial cleansing to be able to use by the priest and worship of these drink offerings and these sacrifices made to God. He pulls them out to make a show of superiority over and against God and the toasting of these idols of gold and silver and bronze and wood, etc. So that's the scene. Verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw 
the part of the hand that wrote. That would be a disturbing thing. Now, I told you that we've excavated much of Babylon, not me personally, but people have. And, and you can read about this. Um, I've not been on any expeditions. I've never been invited, but, but they have excavated this, and they have the throne room excavated, like completely excavated. And, and lo and behold, there is a, a cutout in one wall of the throne room where the wall basically forms a little box, and there's an elevated platform, and that's where... They believed the king would have feasted at the main table, the grand table, while all these assembled people were scattered throughout the rest of this great hall. And sure enough, not the rest of the wall, but behind this, this cutout where the king sat is a plaster overlaid wall. Sure as the world, which I think is pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and it was the, and it, so he, you know, the king is going about and feasting, and all of a sudden, most likely right behind him, so, there's, there's, there's a hand that appears out of the smoky haze. Remember, this is before electricity. And it says here that this is all lamp light. You see, opposite the lamp stand on the plaster of the wall. You know, so it's dark, it's hazy, it's smoky, and everybody has had too much to drink. And as he looks around through the smoke and the haze and the dimness and the darkness in this eerie, debaucherous environment, there's a finger. There's no voice. You know, there's no, there's no big lightning or thunder, but a finger starts writing something on the wall. Well, we get the king's reaction, which is comical in verse 6. Then the king's countenance changed. You think? <laughs> yeah. Countenance is how he appeared physically. Like, visibly in front of a thousand lords, the king's face changed. And his thoughts troubled him. I bet they did. Now it has, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Some of your translations may have something else. The, the, the plainest understanding of this is that he went to the bathroom on himself. That's the plainest understanding of it. Now some people have said, you know, he just got loose in the knees. But, but if you look at the language, many of the commentators see it for what it says. This was a disturbing situation, okay? Which you, can, you could imagine that in a state of, of deep drunkenness anyway. And there's a problem. It says, verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. And you say, well, that is an odd thing to promise somebody, the third ruler of the kingdom. But you got to understand, he was the second. <laughs> this is the highest he could elevate somebody without stepping off the throne himself. The third, Nabonidus has already gone out to fight and been captured. He's number two. The best he can offer is number three. That's the best. That's pretty interesting because for a long time, the scriptures were criticized by referring to this guy Belshazzar because in the cuneiforms that they had, the ancient writings from the Babylonian Empire that had been dispersed throughout the empire, we knew of Nabonidus, but there was no guy by the name of Belshazzar. We didn't understand the situation. You hear the Bible is pretending that this guy Belshazzar is in charge, and then why would he offer him the third in the kingdom? Who's number two? That was the question. And again, archaeologically, in the last 100 years, all this has come to fruition to make sense now. We know that Nabonidus wasn't there. That Belshazzar, who again, we have the name now through archaeological excavation, was ruling in Babylon. And it makes sense, perfect sense, that what the Bible said was right all along. The third was the best that they could offer. Sometimes the mysteries in God's word that skeptics like to pick at 
uh, end up being their own demise when they pick at them because uh, the Bible is an old book, much closer to the events than we are today. So he makes this offer. Third in the kingdom. That's a big promotion for somebody, third in the kingdom. There's an old Shakespearean play. I guess all of his plays are pretty old at this point. <laughs> Richard III. And there's a line in that play, as King Richard III is fighting, he loses his horse underneath him in the middle of a war. And he begins to, to fight melee combat hand to hand, which, you know, in ancient times when you lost your horse, that was usually... Usually your life was next. People on the ground did not have long life expectancies in ancient military conflict. That's why kings and leaders and generals rode on the horse. So he loses his horse, and, and he's heard crying out in the play, A horse! A king! My kingdom for a horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! Wildly roaming. And in Shakespeare's play, he's wildly roaming the battlefield, looking, looking for a horse. My kingdom for a horse! And this became, uh, the, the Shakespearean quote became the quote for a lot of modern day sayings we have today about uh, how much we would trade for something when we're in a desperate situation. You know, I give an arm and a leg or something. Those are all developments from the Shakespearean quote. And that's almost what we see here in the text. You did not give away rule in a kingdom lightly. But that Belshazzar is so alarmed by what he sees and so desperate in his promise is an indication of what we know is happening behind the scenes. That his entire existence, his rule, and what remains of his kingdom are already under threat, and this is desperation at this point in time. Well, it says, verse 8, Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, his countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. The queen. Now, when it says the queen, it most likely means his mother and not his wife. Okay? And again, same with the word father. This word for queen did not necessarily mean the wife of the king. It meant the queen mother. It could mean, and you see from the context, we're going to read why it is more likely that it is the queen mother because she seems to have a very strong recollection of things that have happened in the past that Belshazzar is neglecting and not paying attention to. It says, So then the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. I find it interesting that she wasn't there. She wasn't a part of all this. I, I wonder if she even approved of all of this, if she thought this was prudent. The greatness of Babylon has fallen. And, you know, you have the height of Nebuchadnezzar and then... Uh, a couple of rulers after him who don't live very long because they're not very good. And now we have the spoiled brats in charge who are bad leaders, bad military commanders, bad kings, and here they are at a time when they need good leadership the most and everybody's getting drunk in the, in the palace. And so she, she wasn't any part of this. Now, I don't know if that's how she felt, but that's what it looks like to me. She enters the banquet hall. The queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, talking of Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, 
you almost hear an emphasis here of she's that she's trying to get this this guy to man up and be a king. <laughs> There's the emphasis on the good king, the powerful king, and 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 compared to you, you know, your father the king made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Now there's a couple of things here that I just can't help but point out. Number one, the name Belteshazzar is not fundamentally different from the name Belshazzar. It, it's extremely possible that this boy, who's probably no more than his 20s, was named after the famous Belteshazzar throughout the entire empire. Um, We also know from what unfolds here that he already knew who this guy was, and he already knew what had happened. See, from the start of Nebuchadnezzar's rule to the uh, uh, conquering of Jerusalem when Daniel's taken captive, to this very night, it's been 70 years, 70 years of time. Daniel was a teenager a very early teenager, most likely, when he was taken captive to Babylon. And now, 70 years later, he is an old man. He had a long and prosperous reign with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But when Nebuchadnezzar died, Daniel falls off the radar. Now, at this point, Daniel himself would have been in his 50s, which is an old man in ancient times. Some of you thinking it feels like an old man now but an old man in ancient times. And so it's most likely he's in semi-retirement either by choice or being pushed out the way. Um, I even wonder if this specific affront to the God of Israel by go get the stuff from the God from the temple in Jerusalem is not a deliberate rebellion against all of the stuff that this guy has grown up hearing about the great God of Israel from his childhood. Um, from his grandfather, from his grandmother, from, from the history of the people. So she says, look, let's quit messing around with all this. That You know there's a guy that can help you here. Go get him. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? See, he knows who he's talking about. Are you that Daniel? who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not give the interpretation of the thing. Daniel says, yeah, I've been down that road before. Yeah, we've gone through this a few times. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. I would think uh, strangely of you if that wasn't your, your most favorite verse in the whole chapter here. I mean, that's got to be the best verse in the entire, the entire chapter. This is, this is not a young guy who would be tempted by wealth and power. And he wasn't tempted by wealth and power when he was a young guy. And now, 80s, 90s, almost dead Daniel is not interested in whatever this guy can give him. Let your, you can, 
Well, it's the modern-day vernacular this. Now, keep it, man. I don't need this. You, you keep it. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, and notice he does not say, O king, live forever. That has been the refrain from the first chapter. Not this time. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. I think Nebuchadnezzar was Daniel's friend. They seem to have developed a bond as you read through the first four chapters of this. And uh, Daniel was an Israelite, but he can't be any more happy about what's happened in Babylon the last 20 years than, <laughs> than the queen mother or anybody else. Verse 19, And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it over whomever he chooses. Now look at verse 22. Here is the, the nail in the, in the coffin. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You can't have a king lose his mind and behave like a, an animal for seven years, come out of it, write a letter and a decree for the entire empire, send it around through all of his governors and satraps, and be his grandson and be like, oh yeah, that happened? Really, that's interesting. No, this was a monumental thing. And he knew it. He knew it. But he didn't care. Although you knew all this, and then verse 23, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. It's not just that you knew this and decided not to do anything about it. You knew this, and you have deliberately offended this God. Like, it's not like you did this by accident. You marched your guys over across the street to get the stuff that had been sitting there since the destruction of Jerusalem and bring it back over here and give it to your prostitutes and your, your lords and their prostitutes and to make a mockery out of it as you worship these other gods. It's not just that you knew it, but you knew it and you decided that you were going to throw it in God's face, your own power and your own might and your own gods. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house. <laughs> now, when you put it like that, like you can hear Malachi in the future questioning Israel, will a man rob God? Like, 
they have stolen from his house. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. All of those gods who you're praying They don't see your worship. They don't hear your worship. They don't know you exist. They're not real. They're not going to save you from the Persians. And they're not going to save you from my God. You have chosen the wrong side, man. Whenever I I see someone make a foolish decision in life with terrible consequences, I know this is not the most spiritual thing in the world. I know it's borderline sacrilegious, but I think of Indiana Jones. And if you've never seen Indiana Jones, I think of Indiana Jones. And I, I, think, uh, I think of this scene in Indiana Jones where this rich guy is trying to pick out the holy grail that he thinks Jesus would have drank from. And he picks out this splendorous thing. Some of you have seen this movie and you know what I'm talking about. And he picks out, surely this is, and, and then he drinks it. And it does not go well for him from there. And then there's this, there's this knight who's been living for a long time. And he says, just plainly, you have chosen poorly. And do you say, you think? <laughs> this guy, with full knowledge here, has chosen sides. And Daniel is telling him, you have made the wrong decision. You have made the wrong decision. Listen to this. You have praised these gods which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. That is choosing the wrong side. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsim. Now, I don't know how Daniel read that. The words themselves are not overly challenging in the original language. But clearly this was written in a way, whether... You know, and, and it's, if you read a good Bible commentary, they'll give you like three or four different ways. But it was written in a way where it was not obvious. One of the ways they would write in cuneiform is they would omit the vowels in the ancient language. And if you omit the vowels, like mene and mene, that those, the, the, the word would just be m-n-m-n. And because you're omitting the vowels and you're only putting m-n-m-n, that word could have been a lot of different words, depending on what vowels you plug in. So... You know, one of the better explanations I've heard of this is they're right, it's written on the wall in cuneiform with the vowels omitted, so it's not clear. They see MNMN, but it's unclear which word that's supposed to be with the vowels. But Daniel looks at it, he knows exactly what each of these were, the correct word for each of these things that are written on the wall. And he just tells them, these are the words. And the words were not foreign. It says, then, this is the interpretation Mene, God has numbered numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed, weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. 
the last word, Perez, meaning divided, but also a word that would come to describe the Persians themselves. Perez. Then Belshazzar gave the command. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. It's got to be right up there with the shortest reigns in history. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, I'll just give you the historical part of this because I find it interesting. You can read about it yourself. But what Cyrus did to conquer Babylon so quickly, he leaves half as... Through, through Babylon, this big city, there, there ran the Euphrates River. I mean, these cities were not like... They weren't New Paris, okay? These were massive cities in circumference and walled, okay? And through the city ran the great Euphrates River. And it was uh, obviously protected by, you know, a, a, a gates. And, and, but the gates themselves weren't the protection. The depth of the Euphrates was the protection. And this was a full-blown, moving, raging roar. This was a river, okay? This was a, a full-blown thing. And, and the walls were around the river. So this, the, they ran right through the walls. Cyrus put his army on one side of the walls where the river came in and on the other side of the walls where the river came out and he left them there and he took all of his slaves and all of his people and they went way upstream and they began digging uh, early in the evening and they diverted water away from the Euphrates um, and it, 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 there was already a swamp. They went to a place where when the Euphrates would overflow, it would spill over and it was swampland there. And so they just started digging where the weakness already was. And the Euphrates that night began to slowly fill the swamp into, into a, a reservoir, basically. And they didn't have to empty it. They just had to get it low enough so that they could access the grates where the water ran under the walls. And because the people of Babylon were so secure, they were not diligent in watching this happen. And they realized too late that the river was receding. And by the time they started fighting, the people could already get to the grates, and they rushed in through the city through the gates. They took out the people who were uh, on the walls. The army had already lost in, in battle. The, the, the main military strength was not in Babylon anymore. They'd marched out to fight the Persians, and they took the whole city. They killed the king, and that's the beginning of the Persian Empire. Um, you can read about it. It's interesting. Shortest rule in uh, governing history, third in the kingdom. What do you do with a story like this? Well, um, when, I, when I read this text, to me, I see uh, the judgment of the world and the kingdoms of the world come to its inescapable conclusion. And it's not lost on me that it's Father's Day either. And that it is, I believe, a father's job to help children understand what kind of life, what kind of kingdom, and what kind of, what kind of life they're going to build for themselves. If a father doesn't do that, then he should. And a, a father should be the kind of person who watches the desires of their children's hearts, as well as his own desires. And a father should be the kind of person who recognizes when he's becoming filled with pride and when he's, when he's pouring too much of himself into something that he knows will not last, will not satisfy, will not endure. And a father looks at his children and 
watches their hearts as they get, you know how kids are. Oh, we love this. And then, oh, no, now we love this. And, oh, no, I just want to do this. And just thing after thing after thing. And part of a father's job is not unlike a pastor's job, which is to try to shepherd the hearts of their kids. And if you're a father, you know, today, especially a father in the middle of that struggle, and I hope that you can relate to a little bit of what I'm talking about. So the shepherding is not done by rules and by by commands. It's done by reasoning, trying to speak to your child's mind. It's not enough that they simply obey. They should obey. But at some point, a child has to understand why these things that they're supposed to be obeying are important. And they either become their own convictions or they don't. And part of a father's job is explaining who God is and what a Christian's life should be about and what it shouldn't be about. And here you have a guy in Belshazzar who knew of God and who had a testimony. And he understood these things. He knew the warning about kingdoms and kings and the God of Israel. And he had no concern for anyone. He thought his kingdom was going to endure. And that's how he lived his life. This is what I built. Look at what I've done. No regard for God. No regard for him. And his kingdom comes to a conclusion. And the man is unworthy. There's that statement in there where it says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That is a, an economic term uh, in the olden days. <laughs> Not that old, but in the olden days. The currency was coin, and, the, and the, the kind of material that the coin was, it was a gold coin, it had a certain value. It's a silver coin, it had a certain value. It's a copper coin, it had a different value, right? Well, people would make fake coins, they would plate them in gold or something like that, right? And so when they went to marketplace to trade, the people that they were trading and exchanging with would have scales. And on one side of the scale, they would have the appropriate weight for what a gold coin should weigh or what a silver coin should weigh. And so before they do a transaction, you'd have to put something on that scale <laughs> with the money that you're buying. And if it was gold plated, it wouldn't balance the scale. <laughs> the, your currency would be found wanting. Your money's no good here. You know, it's like in a bad way. We don't want, th and that was, that was criminal. And it's all true through uh, even the history in our own country. Stuff like that was a concern. So what does it mean when it says that God put this man's life on the scale and it was found not to measure up, not to balance, not to weigh, to be, to be a fraud, to be unworthy, to be worthless? That's what a wooden coin with some gold overlaid on it was. It was worthless. So this is a, a deep personal judgment on this man. And you know, the Bible tells us that God keeps an accounting of our lives. It's a scary thing to think about. It's called the book of our works, the book of our deeds. God keeps an accounting. And we are told that all of those who are judged by what's written in that book will die and spend eternity separated from God in everlasting judgment. But there's another book called the book of life that's not based on an accounting of our works, but that's based on the work of what Jesus Christ has done. In fact, it's called the Lamb's book of life. And anyone's name 
found written in that book will not pay the penalty for the accounting of the works of their life, but will be covered by the work of the Lamb at the cross, the person of Jesus. And so, when we sing the songs that say, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. That's what we should be thinking about. What the Lamb has done for us. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. That describes the worthlessness, the fraudulentness, the unworthiness that we have. And that we were sinners whom Christ had to die for. And then you get to the end of that song. And the final verse, I will not boast in anything. Here's a man who's boasting, whose pride has lifted him up, who sees himself as a rival against God. And we're told, there is no boasting in our salvation. We're saved by faith, not works, so that no one can brag about how good they are. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Um, I guess my question to you in closing is this. Um, what are you building with your life? What kingdom are you, are, you, are you building a life for yourself in? Because if it's anything to do with the kingdom of this world, it's, it's done. It's dusted. You know, First John tells us, for this world and the things in this world are perishing. But for the Christian, the great promise of God is that all who come to Jesus Christ by faith will be given an inheritance and a citizenship in a new kingdom, a kingdom that is not fading. And much of the book of Daniel is about that kingdom. And so when you look at the unworthiness of, of a Belshazzar, even if you are, are a Christian who professes faith in Jesus Christ, I hope that you feel some sense of the challenge here of which kingdom are you actually taking pride in? Which kingdom are you actually building a life for yourself in? Because one is passing away, and that comes to a climactic end for this guy in, in Daniel chapter 5. Whatever you build for yourself on this earth will also come to a climactic end. Um, you know, my daughter just started um, working at a hospital as a student nurse. She's not a nurse yet. Very first day of work, she comes home and she says, Dad, someone died today. That happens at hospitals every day. Whatever you're building is going to come to a climactic end down here. That doesn't mean don't build it. doesn't mean don't do anything, okay? But know what it is and what's happening to it, like Nebuchadnezzar learned. You are invited as a citizen of God's kingdom to build treasure there, to build something of value there. And whether or not you do that will honestly come down to whether or not you actually believe you are going there. People who talk about heaven like it's, I hope I don't go to hell, it doesn't surprise me when they don't build much of a life for themselves there. They don't live like they believe they're actually going. It's more like, I just hope I don't go to hell taking almost Pascal's wager. It's better to believe and, you know, maybe, you know, it's better than if I'm wrong and I do go to hell. But that, that, that's not a life that, that's lived in a profitable way. The believer knows whom they believed in and they know where their kingdom is and their treasure is not tied up in this world like a Paul, like a Peter. Their treasure is tied up in the kingdom of God and it's real and they know it's real and they live like it's real. 
So, you know, if you're a dad out there today, if you're a young man who hopes to be a dad out there today, sometime, I hope that you will take a perspective of life that sees it as one of your main objectives to model good kingdom living and to shepherd your children to live that way too. I can't think of a, of a better focus to raise your children as a Christian father. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, uh, I'm very grateful for a dad who taught me many things about life. Um, things that I found useful and practical. Um, I'm thankful for a father who took an interest in the things that I took an interest in and wanted me to take an interest in the things that he took an interest in. I pray for my dad this morning. That you'll strengthen him. Father, I'm very grateful for a, a dad who raised me to take your kingdom seriously and to treasure the appropriate things. Father, I ask that as a heavenly father to us, whether we know a biological father who's raised us that way or not, that we will look to your word and find in your word the instruction that we need to raise kingdom children, to be kingdom people, so that when we die, our lives will not be found out of balance, but we will find that we have lived in a way worthy of your kingdom, and we'll hear the welcome of, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You are a good Lord, a faithful God. We give our hearts to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.